We began our series, uh, our study of Exodus a couple weeks ago. We looked at chapter 6 where we read a manifesto, uh, God's broad and bold declarations that he will rescue his people uh, and that he will rescue them in order to redeem them to himself and uh, that he will teach them what it looks like to live in this world uh, in relationship with him and then become uh, his agents of redemption in the place that he has them. And, uh, and uh, what we see is that that makes up the broad storylines of Exodus, but it also makes up the broad storylines of the beautiful story of the gospel, that in Jesus, God rescues us, uh, he redeems us to himself, and then he teaches us what it means to live in this world in relationship with him and all the challenges of that, and to become, to serve him as his agents of redemption in whatever place that he has us. This story teaches us, it leads us to look to Jesus in all kinds of profound ways. Uh, last week, we talked about how the story changed in chapter one. It moved pretty dramatically from God's people flourishing in Egypt to God's people coming under an escalating oppression uh, under this new rule of an Egyptian king. And uh, in the last verse of uh, chapter 21 paints a very bleak picture indeed. It says that uh, Pharaoh tells all of his people that every boy born to a Hebrew family was to be thrown to their death in the Nile. That's the dark, the dark, dark world that we're entering into when we open up chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Let's look together. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, O Lord Jesus, our rescuer, our redeemer, uh, the one who uh, we call our king and the one who calls us his friend, our friend. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with us, that you would be with us in might and strength and power. Uh, that your Holy Spirit will dwell richly among us, uh, teaching us as we look at this word, and that you would become, uh, that you would become even more great and more mighty and more wonderful and more lovely in our own hearts. 
And I pray uh, this, Father, asking for your help, that you would help me to speak with clarity and with joy and, uh, um, and thankfulness for you, and that you would help me to serve these people faithfully and to serve you faithfully. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's call this an animated conversation, okay? Uh, I, ha- <laughs> I have found myself uh, uh, surprised by an ongoing animated conversation that I've been in uh, over the last several weeks, and uh, I don't want to name names, but uh, let's just say the other party to this conversation is uh, my best female friend who I'm married to, and, and, uh, and in like many of these conversations, it surrounds a habit that I have, <laughs> and, uh, and it's this. If you are getting in the car with me and I'm driving... We are going to go, uh, it doesn't matter how familiar I am with where we're going, uh, how many times I've been there, or, you know, like, if it's the middle of the day or rush hour, it doesn't matter. I am probably going to pull out my phone and pull up, the, pull up the directions to this place and put it on the dash and look at it while I drive. I'm probably going to do it. And she'll say, that's so unnecessary. <laughs> and she's absolutely right. And I think that my, own, my only defense to this is... Uh, I like to know. I like to know. I like knowing. I like knowing where I'm going. I like being reminded uh, of this, how far away I am and what time I'll probably get there. Uh, I like to know if there are other interesting routes I could take. I mean, I like to know these things. And I feel reassured in the knowing. And, you know, I just think that's universally true. We like to know. We like to know when we're thinking about our own lives and what direction they're going. Uh, We like to know when we're thinking about uh, our investments and the thing, uh, you know, what trajectory they're taking. We like to know before we're buying a house. We like to know what's happening in that neighborhood and what trajectory it's on. We like, if if you have kids, you like to know uh, the kind of people that they're becoming. You like to know those things. We like to know. And we feel reinsured when we know. But that's a lot trickier, isn't it? Uh, There's not an app for that, right? I bring that up because when I think about these Israelite people whose world changed overnight from flourishing to oppression in extreme ways, and these, these people that have no idea what God has in store for them and the dramatic exodus that he has prepared for them, what do you think they thought about this route that they were on? What do you think they knew about what God was up to in their very midst? They had to be worried. One of the things this story is teaching us is that God is at work not just in the grand and epic ways. When you talk about uh, the plagues and you talk about um, Moses leading his people out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, we're talking about transcendent, grand, dramatic, epic demonstrations of God's power and his love for his people, right? But when when we look at this story, we're actually seeing that God is at work even in the small and invisible ways. As Christians, we call this God's providence. And it's the conviction 
that God is at work all the time and in many ways that we see and often in ways that we don't see. And so what I want to do this morning is look at this passage and talk about how we see, where we see God at work amongst these Israelite people, uh, what he's doing, and what he's using to accomplish his purposes, okay? Where we see him, what he's doing, and, uh, and what he's using. Uh, first, wh- where we see it. Now, now mo- it, it would be an honest question to ask. If you look at this, we looked at the first 10 verses. We look at it, and there's no claim that God was actually up to things in this passage. There's no, you don't, he's not named here. And it's a fair question to ask. If you look at it, you say, is God at work, or is this just a series of, uh, of, of interesting events that led to something? Uh, I would propose to you that God is behind every single uh, every single thing that we see in this passage, and it drops little hints. I want to point them out to you. It drops little hints, and, uh, and it is all leading, weaving, God is weaving these things together uh, into a tapestry of redemption that we get to, to imagine. Uh, the first little hint we see with this woman, Moses' mother. Later, we're going to find out her name is Jochebed, I think, is either that or Jochebed, but, uh, but his mother uh, gives birth to, to her son. And uh, th- this is really common in ancient Hebrew storytelling, but often the storytellers leave real gaps in, uh, in, what they t- in the story that they tell. They don't answer all the questions of the reader. And this is often because it's inviting you to fill in the gaps with your imagination. Uh, what questions would you want to ask her uh, if you saw, if, when you meet her in heaven? Uh, the question would be, the gap in the story is, what in the world were you thinking, right? Like, what led, <laughs> what led, you, what led you to choose to do this with your son? We get the idea that she held him for as long as she could, right, for for, uh, for, uh, until he became a very noisy baby and she could no longer hide him. She could no longer keep him quiet. But what led her to think that putting him in a basket and laying him on the, the side of the river would actually be uh, the best possible option? Now, you can imagine opinions are all over the place on this story. Some people think that, uh, that she was calculating in this decision that it was a popular place on the river that women, Egyptian women, would come and bathe in privacy and that it would be very likely that, that, that Moses would be discovered in the spot that she chose. Uh, other people would say that she was desperate, uh, that this was the best thing that she could think of and she was actually hoping uh, that he would somehow get swept down the river and arrive someplace where he could be safe and, uh, and, and growing up. Um, you know, that, that, those are, and I've read every opinion on this in between, okay? The author of Hebrews offers a different opinion. It doesn't tell us what she was thinking. But the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23, would say that this was two things. This was Jochebed's act of courage, and it was Jochebed's act of deep faith. It was courage to defy the king's orders. She did that at the risk of her own life and probably the life of her family. And it was deep faith that she knew that God would provide 
in ways that she might or might not be able to understand. Courage and faith. That's, what, that's one little hint that's pointing to the idea that God is at work, even in the heart of a mother. Here's another one. This one's pretty fun. Uh, when, uh, when she builds this basket, she seals it with bitumen and pitch. And uh, the word that's used for basket, the Hebrew word that's used for basket, is used only one other place in the entire New Testament. In Genesis 6, when Noah, another story of deliverance, when Noah is called by God to build an ark. This is the word for ark. And that's essentially what she did. She, she built a little baby-sized ark. She, she has this, uh, this basket and she seals it up with bitumen and pitch, just like Noah did. And she is, is all just pointing to the idea that God is actually at work in, uh, in their midst. It's these little hints that the story gives us that he is active and moving in seen and in unseen ways. And that's because all these little hints that you see are actually pointing to a grander narrative, a big story that's in their midst. Because the the main character of the story of Exodus isn't actually Moses or Jochebed or his older sister Miriam or the high priest Aaron or the Pharaoh. Like, that's not the main story, the main character of the story. The main character of the story is God himself and his love for his people and his desire to rescue them. And to exert his power. And this is telling us these are precursors to salvation. It's like God is sowing seeds amongst the people and weaving together all these threads of, uh, of his activity to form a wonderful, beautiful tapestry that tells the story of his redemption. That's that's what's going on in this passage. And I think the challenge for us here is would be the same as the challenge. For the people in this story, it would be to believe that God is actually at work all the time. And that if we actually understood all the things that God was doing in our midst, uh, the ways that he was at work in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us, the ways he is alive and at work in our church and in our homes and in our in our businesses, in, in our kids, like the, if we actually understood all the ways that he was at work, it might blow our minds. Some people call this a redemptive imagination. It's the willingness to see or even just the willingness to trust that God is doing things that we might not understand. Uh, we practice a redemptive imagination in, the, in our church, in our worship service every week. Uh, we do it whenever we celebrate the sacrament. Whenever we take sacraments, we're practicing a redemptive imagination. Because we believe that there's so much more going on than we understand whenever, whenever we baptize uh, a child or an adult. We believe that God is actually at work in ways we may or may not understand. It's so much more than the physical representation of water rolling down their cheek. We believe that the Holy Spirit is doing something in our midst every time we come to the table and we, we eat this bread and we drink this wine. We, we believe that there are very practical things, but we also imagine with great hope that God is doing something with it. Uh, if, we didn't, if we didn't have a redemptive imagination, hoping for the things that God would do, then why would we ever pray? 
Asking for God to do things for us that we couldn't do. Teaching us to surrender to his will. Eugene Peterson was a pastor in uh, suburban D.C., and he would say that's, the, that's a central challenge of God's people in this day is that we would learn to hope beyond what we immediately see. And we would learn to cultivate a trust that God is providentially at work in ways that we see, in grand ways, and in ways that we don't see. Let's talk about what God is doing. What is God doing? Well, first, he undermines Pharaoh's wisdom. He undermines Pharaoh's wisdom. There are all kinds of irony at work in these passages. Uh, I'm going to name a few of them, but uh, it seems like every time you see an irony in this story, it's actually a way that God is undermining the wisdom of Pharaoh. Here's the first one. Pharaoh decided that um, the, the, the... all the young boys in the Hebrew population should be eliminated. And he explained his logic in chapter 1. It was because he was afraid that they would grow up so mighty, there would be so many of them, they would grow up and they would create an army that would threaten him and maybe even join with a foreign army and it would threaten the Egyptian peace or overthrow his rule. That was his logic. But what's interesting, when you look at this story, I I really think that the the first readers of this story would have gotten a kick out of this. Um, Because when you look at this story, what you see uh, are active people actively working against Pharaoh's plan, and none of them are are boys or men. You got got this mother, and you got this uh, older sister, and you got Pharaoh's own daughter working against him. Maybe he's concerned about the wrong things. It's, it's an irony that points to the ways that, that, uh, that God is actually undermining his wisdom. Uh, we're gonna, here's another one. We're later going to learn that his sister, her name is Miriam. She's going to be named in a few chapters. Um, and uh, she's actually going to be noted as this big-time contributor. God uses her in mighty, mighty ways. But when she sees the princess discover Moses, she was... She, <laughs> She's very resourceful. What does she do? She goes up to the princess and she suggests, she makes a suggestion that maybe she could go find a Hebrew nursing mother somewhere that could then care for this child. And so she reconnects Moses with his mother and Jochebed ends up getting paid by Pharaoh's money to do what she wanted to do all along. And not only that, but Moses, who was born under the banner of death, now exists under the supreme security of Pharaoh's own household. That the, the, the one who would later rise up to become a deliverer of his people grows up in Pharaoh's home under his protection. It's supreme irony. And it seems like at every turn what God is doing is he's just undermining the, the, the wisdom of Pharaoh. He undermines his wisdom and he exposes his pride because it looks like all this happens right under his nose and he has no idea. A, a lot of people have asked the question, how did the princess justify bringing a Hebrew baby home and adopting him into the family? 
And I would have two, two answers for that. We can't really know how that went down. One is that it, it appears from the story that Moses went back home with Jochebed for a time while he was nursing. Um, but the other logical explanation is that Pharaoh just had no idea. Uh, if this is the succession of Egyptian kings that I think it is, we're talking about a man named Ramesses II or Ramesses II. It may be him, it may not be, but what we know about him is that he had close on 60 daughters. Just gives you a picture of the kind of culture and lifestyle of these Egyptian pharaohs. And it's just very hard to believe that he could understand what was going on right under his nose the whole time. This is a test of wills. You might say uh, Pharaoh's playing checkers and God is playing chess with him. He is outwitting him at every turn. John Flavel, the great Puritan, once said, there's not a greater discovery of pride in the world than in the contest of our wills with God. When we read this story, we're reading a story about a test of wills between the God of the universe and the king of the Egyptians, and we're seeing where true power and true wisdom lie. And that's where, that's where providence comes from. That's where our ability to trust in God's providence are, is actually rooted. It's rooted in the idea that God is all-powerful, that he can do all things he sets his mind to. But it's also, we find great rest in the idea that God is also all-loving toward his people. It's his love and it's his power joined together that actually gives us rest in being able to trust his providential work. You know, there was a time when Jesus stood before a bunch of people who were trying to kill him. And he'll say this, look at, listen to the way he joins, he is the intersection, the incarnation of God's power and his love at all times working itself out for his people. This is John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Love, right? Intimacy. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Power. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Love, God's love, and God's power have woven together in his work on behalf of his people. And I say that because when you think about Jesus, the parallels between uh, who Jesus is and who Moses is are, are just endless. I mean, you see them all over in the story. I mean, Jesus, too, came, came to the earth as a vulnerable child. During a, time, during a time when another king was actually killing Hebrew babies. Uh, so much so that his, his parents were afraid for his life. And so they sought to hide him. Uh, his, and he was born a savior to his people. And yet he begins his life as a vulnerable child. I mean, the parallels are just endless. It's pointing to Jesus in all kinds of ways. And, and Jesus grew, grew to become this living demonstration of both God's love for his people and God's power working out on behalf of his people. And you, you see it in all kinds of places, but the clearest place you see it is in his death and his resurrection. I mean, you see in Jesus' crucifixion just this uh, uh, incredible demonstration of Jesus' deep 
love and affection for his people. He united himself to something which would have destroyed us eternally. And he did it for the sake of the people he loves. And in his resurrection, we get a a glimpse of his of his power that we do not have. It is a teaching that, uh, that our hope is rooted in God's active love and his acting power at all times on behalf of his people. Jesus' plan to rescue his people in, in, involved his own death. And in his death, we see his love. And so what I want you to understand this morning, what I want you to see is that if you belong to Jesus... I want you to know that you are safe. You might not feel safe, but you are at all times in the hand of Jesus Christ, your Savior, and no one, no one, not even yourself, can snatch you you out of his hand. Because no one loves you more than Jesus, and no one is more powerful than Jesus. And when when we become his, we become not just objects of his redemption, but we become agents of his redemption. And so the point I want to make for you here is that, is that what we see in this passage of the ways God uses people to accomplish his redemptive pur- purposes is both extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. Uh, in a lot of ways, each one of these women in this story are extraordinary, extraordinary people. But they're also doing very human things that we can understand. I mean, when you look at this mother, what you see is a mother who's trying to to take care. This is a story of a mom being a mom and seeking to take care of this child she loves and doing whatever she could under difficult circumstances to take care of her child. And, And we remember her for her courage. And when you look at Miriam, this is the story of an attentive sister who wouldn't let her little brother out of her sight and the resourcefulness and courage she uses to connect this princess uh, with her mother. We remember Miriam for her wisdom. And this princess, this is just a beautiful story of, of her tenderness. Because when she looks on this child, she probably knew that it was a Hebrew child because she observed the sign of the covenant on him. He would have been circumcised on the eighth day. And pity came over her. We, her, her, uh, her, Uh, human pity overcame her sense of Egyptian duty. And so we remember her for her compassion. And while each one of these acts is extraordinary, they're all basic human image-bearing things that they live out in front of them. And God is using each one of them to accomplish his purposes. What is he using? He's using people. He's using people in the ways that he likes. It seems over and over again, we see that, that normal people doing very human things from which God draws out extraordinary results. And this is so clear in the life of Moses. You know, Moses is going to be looked at in the Bible as somebody, who, uh, and somebody who, whose name is revered from one end of the Bible to another. But when you look at Moses, you're actually looking at somebody who's filled with self-doubt and self-recrimination. I mean, he's gonna, you, you, we're going to see several times where he goes to God and says to him, I can't do this anymore. You shouldn't have chosen me. I have a speech impediment. How can I go before Pharaoh and speak? I, I, and God is constantly saying to him, you, it's okay. It's okay. 
I'm going with you. I say all that because when we think about what it means to be an agent of redemption in our place, in our church, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, when we think about uh, what it means to, to serve uh, God's purposes in this place, it can feel like the needs are so big and we can feel so small. And we can get easily overwhelmed with the idea. Uh, remember what the disciples felt when, they were, when Jesus was feeding 5,000 people. And they were, it says they were overwhelmed with the needs of this crowd and their hunger. And they come to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you have in your hands? And he says, I said, I got a little bit of bread and some, some fish. It's not near enough. And I can, I can do something with that. Watch as Jesus multiplies the little things that they offer and uses them for the good of people. A couple weeks ago, I gave you a quote by a pastor named George Robertson. I want to close by giving you one of his stories. He um, told this story about a a dear friend of his from when he pastored in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, He was a a Christian, fairly new Christian, hadn't been a, a, a Christian for very long. He was an adult. He and his wife were at a missions conference and he was getting overwhelmed with all, all the things that he needed to do. And, um, you know, he was feeling a lot of pressure about what it meant to serve Jesus in a mighty way. And then he heard a, he heard a sermon um, by a missionary pastor who preached on that passage of Jesus in the 5,000. And he said, what do you have in your hands? What do you have in your hands? Surrender it to Jesus and watch as he multiplies it for the good of his kingdom. And uh, the and the guy, well, he was just a young Christian, and he didn't know any better than to take him literally. And so he looked in his pocket, and he saw that he had tomato seeds. And he thought, well, what can I do with these? I got tomato seeds, and uh, and I'll, uh, I, you know, I was going to plant them in my own backyard, but maybe maybe I can use them somewhere. And so he looked at his city, the city he lived in, and he found all these food deserts, places where people couldn't travel to get fresh produce and, uh, for themselves. And, and uh, he began planting tomato plants to serve the people there. And that grew into community gardens. And he learned to garden and taught people to garden at the same time. It became incredible. And then, and then he learned that children who learned to play violin were also better at math. And he thought, well, I'm terrible at violin, but I took some as a kid and I can scratch out a few notes and uh, you know, maybe I can teach some violin. So he just goes around and starts learning to play violin better and teaching violin to kids. And as the story goes, it just went on and on and on and on. Small things that God was using to accomplish his purposes. What do you have in your hand, Moses? I got this stick. I can use that. I can use that to lead my people out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. I can use that. The question turns to us. What do we have? What do we have in our hands that we can look at with a redemptive imagination, trusting the providence of God, hoping that God will use it as a demonstration of both his love and his power? What do we have? Let me pray. Oh, dear Father, I pray that you would lead us, uh, lead us in joy 
and in hope and that lead us in looking to you with expectant hope. Um, Help us, I pray. And Jesus, I pray that you would be the objects of our greatest affections. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move us as you see fit as we turn to your meal. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.